Hello, and welcome to the podcast of the Believer's Bible Class, a part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. Each week, we share the Bible lesson from our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. Doug has studied the biblical scriptures throughout his life and is knowledgeable in both ancient Greek and Hebrew, which makes his explanations of scripture all the more interesting and most certainly all the more accurate. Professionally, Doug is an attorney, although he considers his Bible teaching as his godly profession. Well, we're going on with our very deep study of the book of Daniel. We have just finished the ninth chapter of this great book of history and prophecy, and today we begin our study of the tenth chapter of Daniel. We'll get to know Daniel more and more personally as we continue our study, and we find that his commitment to the Lord was 100%. The Believer's Bible Class is part of the historic First Baptist Church located in downtown Dallas, Texas. You may wonder why I refer to the church as being historic. We are in our 154th year since this church was founded, and it continues to grow in these last days. Our new campus, with its wonderful worship center, the Criswell Building that houses so many Sunday school classes on six floors, and the children's building just across the street— Well, that's a big operation. And, of course, the five parking garages that are used by our congregation each week as they come to church. The Believer's Bible Class meets every Sunday morning at 9.15 in Lavorne Hall, located on the lower level of the new Worship Center building. We would love to have you visit our class if you happen to be in the Dallas area. Well, Doug is at the podium, ready to begin, so let's turn to the 10th chapter of Daniel as we begin today. Here now is our longtime teacher, Doug Brady. We we are getting close to the end of Daniel. Does that mean we're only going to have two or three more lessons? No. But in the book, so to speak, we're there. But I wanted to take just a minute to make a quick review We're going to pray, and then I'm going to go through, and I want you to learn the book of Daniel by pictures, so you can just reel off the book of Daniel by pictures. You're going to find it's real easy. Before we go any farther, let's pray. Father, today, as we look at this book and we start the 10th chapter, I pray that you will speak through me, and it will be exactly what you want said. Even the dumb joke I thought about, you won't have me even say anything about it, so that we can just understand the importance of what it's talking about. I pray these things in Jesus' name, amen. Now, book of Daniel, chapter by chapter, by pictures. Chapter number one, it's a time of learning an uncompromising life. And you just need to think, chapter one, refusal to compromise. Chapter 2, it's about the statue that vision came to Nebuchadnezzar. Chapter 3, it's about the fiery furnace and those three young men who got to spend an hour in the furnace with Jesus. Number 4, it's about a tree being chopped down and a king that gets turned into an animal. That's chapter 5. Chapter 5, that's about the handwriting on the wall. Wouldn't it be cool if we could find that part of the wall with that written on it. Number six is about the lion's den and spending a night there. 
Chapter 7 is about the four beasts that Daniel saw, and that's how God sees these Gentile kingdoms as beasts. Then uh, chapter 8 is about the ram and the goat, uh, Persia and uh, Greece and Alexander. And then we all remember that chapter 9 is about the countdown for 70 weeks. And if you learn those pictures, you've got that whole part of the book. We only have three more chapters to go. But I want you to look at something else. Let's look back at chapter 9 for just a second because we've been there so long. If you remember, we were allowed to pull back the curtain and look into Daniel's prayer life. We saw Daniel praying earnestly and fervently. We learned that his prayers, the prayers that were so spectacularly answered, were motivated by God's word and especially the promises that were contained in God's holy scriptures. Now, his prayer, as recorded in chapter 9, could be described really as an agonizing plea, if you remember that, characterized by great travail. How long did he pray? Prayed all day. Now, when did God give him the answer or send the answer to him? The very start. Well, wait a second. You mean God didn't listen to the whole prayer before he provided the answer? No, because he knew exactly what the whole prayer was. And technically, I want you to think about this just a second. When you pray to God, he doesn't listen to your words. You know why? He's reading your heart. It's more accurate for him to read your heart than to listen to your words, because sometimes the words don't say what's really in your heart. And he answers those kind of prayers, and he did answer Daniel's prayer spectacularly. His primary desire was to learn when his people were going to be allowed to go home. But in response to his servant's prayer, not only did God stir up the heart of Cyrus so that uh, he would allow the Jewish people to return to Judah, he also told Daniel how and when the dispensation of his people will end, things that we wouldn't know. If he hadn't told them to Daniel and Daniel hadn't written, written them down. Do you think that Daniel was overjoyed to learn that his people were finally going to get to go home? He was. He was excited. And you leave chapter 9 and David, Daniel is in a situation or a mood of excitement. That's even better word. Don, euphoric. I'm glad to hear that. Now, there's a lot of people who fail to understand a very important spiritual principle. And you're not going to like this the way I say it to start with, but I want you to consider this. When God makes you a promise, does he always just fulfill it if nothing else happens? No. What has to happen? The key to unlocking the promises of God is prayer. I want you to, I, I came across a perfect example of that to give you. It's found in the story of Elijah. We're going to study him one day. But here's the key principle that I want you to see. God's promises are brought to fruition by the earnest, faithful prayer of God's people. Now, let's look at the situation here with Elijah. We're going to start in 1 Kings chapter 18, verse 1. It says, now it happened after many days that the word of the Lord came to Elijah in the third year, saying, Go show yourself to Ahab, and I will send rain on the face of the earth. Now you look at that. 
What does it appear that Elijah has to do in order for rain to come? No, I didn't say that. Go show himself to Ahab. But see, that's not it. That was what he was instructed to do. But to unlock that promise that prayer is coming, what does he have to do? He has to pray. Well, you come to 1 Kings chapter 41. Elijah said to Ahab, go up and eat and drink, for there is the sound of the roar of a heavy shower. Now, this is interesting. If Ahab, and he probably did, were to look up in the sky, what would he see? No clouds. Blue. uh, Promised land blue. The same color on the Israeli flag. That's what he's seen. No No clouds at all. It was completely, he looks up there and he sees that probably and he's saying, what is it with this guy? But has uh, Elijah gained a little credence by that point? Number one, he just called fire down from heaven. Not only did it consume the sacrifice, consume the wood, it consumed the rocks, it consumed the dirt, it consumed the water, it's all gone, there's nothing but a crater left. In addition to that, what was Elijah's appearance like at that time? Bloody. He just killed over 900 people, priests of the devil. And you can't do that with a sword without, uh, many of you may not know what death like is with a sword, but blood seems to spray. Now, so what happens? Elijah said you could hear the sound of a heavy shower. What type of ears was he listening with? Spiritual ears. You see, I'm convinced that we have spiritual senses in the same way we have physical senses. So how attuned are your spiritual senses? But going further then to to verse 42, so Ahab went up to eat and drink, but Elijah went up on the top of Carmel and he crouched down on the earth, put his face between his knees, and he said to his servant, go now and look toward the sea. So he went up and looked and he said, There's nothing. And he said, go back at seven. Now, what is Elijah doing? He's not just crouching there. He's praying. And he told him seven times. At one through six, there was nothing in sight. But number seven. Have you noticed how seven comes up a great deal? Have you know? Remember how many times Naaman had to dip himself into the river? So when he went up and looked, there was nothing. And it came about at the seventh time that he said, Behold, a cloud as small as a man's hand is coming up from the sea. And he said, Go up, say to Ahab, prepare your chariot and go down so that the heavy shower does not stop you from getting home. And he did that. The prayer brought the rain. Until the prayer came, there was no rain. And if you want to unlock God's promises... In your personal life, in your family's life, in your church's life, in your nation's life, you have got to pray. In addition to that, sometime you ought to read that passage again and try and emulate the position that Elijah was in. Or you ought to look back in Daniel chapter 9 And Daniel chapter 10, part of which we're going to look at today, and see what Daniel did as he was praying for his nation and what was going to happen. Now, chapter 10 is the beginning of Daniel's last vision. 
This vision, together with its introduction, spans three chapters in this book. It is my opinion that the purveyor of chapters failed at the last part of Daniel. Now, let me tell you, the first nine were perfectly done. Every event or series of events that went together were in one chapter. In Daniel 9, for example, his prayer was in chapter 9, the visit by the angelic messenger was in chapter 9, and the prophecy was given in chapter 9. But then this chapter guy comes in, he gives you the, the prayer and the arrival of the messenger in chapter 10, but the vision then he puts in chapter 11 and 12, and so he's dividing the, the vision and the message. It should be only 10 chapters in this book. But that's my opinion, but you need to remember the chapters are, are not inspired. That's a, a man-made edition, just like the verse numbers are not inspired. That's a man-made edition. Now, looking at chapter 10, verse 1, it says this, In the third year of Cyrus, king of Persia. Now, we're going to stop right there. Cyrus, king of Persia. Why does he mention Cyrus, king of Persia? There's several reasons. The first thing I want you to do is I want you to consider this example. Let's say in our country's history, in 1816, a guy who's rather prominent in, in, in the country stands up and he says, I have a prediction. Prediction is threefold. I want you to put it in the newspapers and several reputable newspapers report his prediction. Number one, there's going to be a man who's going to be elected president of our country who's not a military man and he's not a politician, he's just a businessman. Number two of my prediction, I'm going to tell you that his name is Donald J. Trump. And they all say, we've never heard of it. Well, that's not going to happen yet. Number three, this president that I'm talking about, Donald J. Trump, is going to move the embassy of the United States from Tel Aviv to Jerusalem where it's supposed to be. Now, let's say 200 years ago that prediction was made. What would everybody say? You're crazy. First of all, there is no Israel. How can there be an embassy? And who is Donald J. Trump? We've never heard of him. But after 2016, you would have thought, where did that guy get that? That is exactly what Isaiah did in 740 B.C. Exactly. I want you to see it. I'm going to read it to you again in Isaiah chapter 44, verse 28. This is also another chapter division that's probably not because 45.1 should be with 44.28. It is I who says of Cyrus, he is my shepherd, and he will perform all my desire. Now, who's saying this? God's saying this. He, what does he say? He can get Cyrus to do whatever he wants. What does it say in Proverbs 21.1? The heart of the king is like channels of water in the hands of the Lord. He turns it whichever way he wishes. And he declares, and he declares of Jerusalem, she shall be built. Well, people are saying, wait a second. Jerusalem already exists. It doesn't need to be built. Yeah, but Isaiah knew what was going to happen. She will be built, and the temple, your foundation, will be laid. Thus says the Lord to Cyrus, his anointed, whom I have taken by the right hand to subdue nations before him and to loose the loins of kings, 
loose the loins of kings. Do you remember what happened with Belshazzar after the handwriting on the wall? Yes. To open doors before him so that gates will not be shut. And about 200 years later, that prophecy came true. Do we just have the Bible to rely on that Cyrus was the one who allowed God people to return to the promised land? Can we know that any other way? Look right here. This is the cylinder of Cyrus. In there, he's boasting about its accomplishments. And one of the things is he let the nation of Israel go back to Jerusalem and rebuild their city and lay the foundation of the temple. He said that. Do you think anyone was guiding his speech when he was saying that? Do you think anyone was preserving that cylinder so it could be found at just the right time? I think all of those, the answer is yes. So the vision took place in the third year of the reign of Cyrus the king. Well, with that, in the progressive camp, there's an uproar. You can see Daniel is fake. There's the evidence. It's internal evidence. It's the strongest evidence there was. Why do we say that? This is going to prove that somebody else wrote this last three chapters. Because you see, in Daniel chapter 1, it says he would live until the first year of Cyrus. And now this guy is writing something is occurring where Daniel's there in the third year of Cyrus. Can't you see it? Somebody else wrote that. If the guy who wrote the first chapter knew, was writing the second, the third, the last chapter, wouldn't he know what he had said nine chapters before? Of course he would. Now, this is what they always do. Whether it's progressives in biblical studies and higher biblical criticism, whether it's progressives in the government. Let me show you what they're doing. Look at Daniel chapter 1 verse 21. And Daniel continued until the first year of Cyrus the king. Now, do you want to know what the word continued means? Well, I'm going to tell you anyway. Continued. Continued. To understand that verse, what do you need to know? It doesn't say Daniel necessarily lived until the first year. What is the context? The context is Daniel and his three friends are graduating the school of Nebuchadnezzar, and they're being put into public service in all these offices, and Daniel continued in public service until the first year of Cyrus. He didn't die in the first year of Cyrus. He retired from public service. You see, those progressives, they just misquote, and they fabricate. And like I said, that he lived until, that's not what that verse says. Somebody else didn't write it. Daniel wrote it, and that's why he now has more time to write because he's not having to work full time. He's probably about 84 years old now. So let's go back chapter 10, verse 1, because there are a couple words here I want you to see. In the third year of Cyrus, the king of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel, who was named Belteshazzar, and the message was true and one of great conflict. But he understood the message and had an understanding of the vision. Now, the first one I want you to see is this word revealed. Revealed means to uncover or to disclose. Those words really mean the same thing. If you have something hidden under something and you uncover it, you're now disclosing what was underneath. That's what this means. 
This was disclosed to Daniel. Now, from God's point of view, you need to understand something. Is this something that is going to happen? Answer, no. As far as God goes, there's no time. It's already happened. That's why it's so easy for God to predict the future, because it's already happened to God. God is not bound by time. Now, I know that's difficult to understand because everything in our lives is all about time. Our language is based on time. But the fact is, God knows the end from the beginning and the beginning from the end. And it's all there, and it's easy for him to say, and this is what he's saying, I'm going to disclose to you who is bound in time something's going to happen for, from your perspective in the future. And so that's this word revealed. In addition to that, I want you to look at the word true. What it says is what is being revealed to him is true. I, if I were translating it, I would use a little different word. Not that it's not true. I would use it's reliable. Absolutely reliable. That's the concept here. Reliable, you can count on it. And that's what it's, it's saying. Now... That's where we get to a very difficult phrase. Now, what does this word conflict mean? Well, it's the Hebrew word sabah. And it means to go forth in war. It can mean an army that's going to go forth in war. It means warfare or military service. Now, how has it been translated? Because this is a difficult passage. I believe it's an idiom. In the Net Bible, it shows it as, and concerned a great war. There it's treating it as singular. In the ESV, it says, and it was a great conflict. Well, what's the it? We don't know. And and that's not a proper translation there. And in C, the New American Standard, in one of great conflict, They're missing, I think, the point of this word. In the New King James and the King James, it says, uh, and the appointed time was long. But the appointed time was long. Appointed time is is the translation of this word, sabah, that the best translation, in my opinion, is, and it's true and concerning much warfare. There's going to be a lot of wars talked about here in 11 and 12. A lot of conflicts going on back and forth. There'll be political uh, actions back and forth. And so that's the way I would translate it. I think that's the... Pardon me? Well, except the word conflict in our language is one of those words like deer. Is deer singular or plural? It's actually both. You have to tell by the context. Here in the conf- there's great conflict. It's not just one war, multiple wars. All right, because most people don't, but anyway. Now, let's look at some common words that they use, that he uses in Daniel chapter 10, verse 1. In the third year of Cyrus of Persia, a message was revealed to Daniel. Now, wait, who's writing this? Daniel. He could have said a message was related, uh, was, was given to me, right? He didn't. He said Daniel. Why would he do that? Because who is guiding his pen? The Holy Spirit. Does the Holy Spirit know that those 
I was going to say something I shouldn't say. But those progressive scholars are going to try and attack this Bible and say, somebody else wrote that chapter, these last three chapters. Did he know that? Yes. So not only does he say Daniel here in chapter 1, I mean chapter 10, 1, he says it in verse 2, he says it in verse 7, does it in verse 11, says it in verse 12. So there may be no question, I'm writing this, not anybody else. And we need to see that. He's writing it. That's number one. Number two, he says who was named Belteshazzar. Why? Now, what is that name? Do you remember? Way back in chapter one, these young men, about 75 of them, came in. We only know the names of four of them. The rest of them disappeared. But those four were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. And you remember, they changed their names. Daniel's name was Belteshazzar, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. Why'd they do that? It was all part of a brainwashing plan of Nebuchadnezzar. He taught them the, the learning of the Chaldeans. He made them eat Chaldean food. He did all of these things in an attempt to brainwash them. What Daniel is saying here, I was the guy who they tried to brainwash, and I chose not to compromise. They didn't get me. That's what he said. Some of you, or maybe more than some, have uh, attended universities, and when you attended those universities, there were people who were actively trying to brainwash you. You think the attempts to brainwash you were bad, the attempts to brainwash our children today are even worse. And those two little grandchildren, granddaughters of mine, it's going to be even worse. They're going to try and brainwash them. You look at what's being taught in our public schools today. It's amazing the absolute manure that is piled on top of those children. If we were to go in and sit in some of those classes, we would be appalled. Daniel is saying, I chose not to compromise. So yeah, that's the name they call me. You can remember that. But if you really want to know who I am, I'm Daniel. The Lord is holy. That's his name. Now, also look in that verse. There's two words that appear, to, appear twice, or one word that appears twice. Understanding or understood. How important is that to us? Well, it talks about a doctrine that I find rarely referred to in the churches. We don't talk about, there's a lot of doctrines we talk about, and those doctrines are important. How many of you in here have, call, have heard of the doctrine of perspicuity? Has anybody here ever heard of the doctrine of perspicuity? Maybe one? Anybody else? All right. The doctrine of perspicuity. I think it's important for us to understand this. It was something that the church had missed out for the longest of times until the Reformation. Some of us, or some people, use, they don't use that technical term, perspicuity. They use the word clarity, the doctrine of the clarity of the Scriptures. But what this is about is, this doctrine states that the Bible is basically clear and lucid. It is simple enough that any literate person can understand the basic message of the Scriptures. 
You ask yourself the question, what kind of God would reveal his love and redemption to a world but use such technical terms and concepts so obtuse that only an elite core of professional scholars would be able to understand them? Who, what kind of God would do that? Biblical Christianity is not so esoteric and its contents not so concealed in vague symbols that require some sort of special insight to grasp. Now, it's interesting. What do the higher biblical critics and progressive scholars say? Oh, only they can understand these things. That's in the direct affront to the doctrine of perspicuity. And we need to remember that because that is an important doctrine, especially in this time of trying to change and modify the meanings of the scriptures. So with that, let's go on to Daniel chapter 10, verse 2 and 3. In those days, I, Daniel, had been mourning for three weeks. I did not eat any tasty food. I did not, nor did meat or wine enter my mouth, nor did I use any ointment uh, at all until the entire three weeks were completed. Now, what is he doing? He's fasting, praying. Now, he says mourning. He doesn't say praying. I tell you what, whatever disease that you got has done you really well. You've come back a new man. And no longer these dumb answers, giving really astute responses. Well, I'm glad to hear that. Now, don't mess it up. Now, here's the thing. I would translate this word mourning as lamenting. Mourning is more of an attitude. Lamenting is more of an action. And that's what he's doing. And yet it involves the same thing. He is very unhappy about something. And he is praying and fasting about it. And I want you to see that. Now, he's doing it for three weeks. Now, some people could say, now, wait a second, Doug. You're reading into this. It's, whether it's lamenting or mourning, it's not praying. It doesn't say that. If it was praying, it would say that, wouldn't it? My answer would be yes. If it was praying, it would say that. So, Jerry, let's look at Daniel 10, 12, when the angel comes and speaks to him. Then he said to me, do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart on understanding this and humbling yourself before God, your words were heard, and I have come in response to your words. Now, was he praying or not? Of course he was praying. But it's a different kind of prayer. He was greatly sorrowful, mourning for something. What made Daniel so sorrowful? We need to find that out. To understand what's going on here, why was he more extremely sad and disappointed? In the last chapter, he was full of excitement. In fact, what's a better word, Don? You just told it to me. No, of why... Euphoric. Exactly. Now, I, that's it. I shouldn't have disturbed that. Uh, you said that what prayer, but it says it is important that Daniel and another prayer. He was. Oh, I accept your call. <laughs> but wait, didn't I just read uh, Daniel 10, 12 to explain that he actually was praying? So I, I don't think I'm apologizing about that. You just missed that part when you were snoozing there. You were resting on your laurels. 
But be that as it may, he was full of excitement. Why? His people were going to get to return to Jerusalem. They were going to rebuild it. Here's millions of Jews over here in Persia in the land of Mesopotamia. They're going home. How awesome is that? The exile is practically over. Finally, things will be made right. Now, during the time from chapter 9, in between when he wrote chapter 9 to when he wrote chapter 10, is approximately two to three years. During that time, God had Cyrus issue the decree, enabling the Jews to return to their homeland. What they did is recorded in Ezra 1, 1 through 4. Uh, In Ezra 4 4 and 5, it talks about there there were millions of Jews. You know how many went back that first trip? 42,000. Daniel is saying, wait a second. I prayed for this. God answered. You can go back. What about the rest of you guys? You're only going to let 42,000 go? And historically, what had happened was this. During this period of time that the Jewish people were there in Babylon first and then Persia, they did well. They became high in the financial structures of those two countries and in the business structures of those two countries. And they're saying, why should we go back there and start over? Look at all we've got here. Only the ones who hadn't made it, so to speak, they were the ones who went back. And Daniel is sad. Now there's something else that saddened him. Because you remember, he had this complex prophecy in Daniel 9, 24 through 27. And does it talk about the Messiah coming? Yes. Does it say how these people are going to respond to the Messiah? Yes. And what are they, does it say they're going to do to the Messiah? Kill him. How can that possibly be? How could we be such fools, he's thinking in his mind, in his heart, that we're going to kill the one we've been waited for for thousands of years? And then they won't even go back. He is absolutely heartbroken at what is happening here. And so with a heavy heart, he starts a second prayer session. And he wants to find out. He prays and he prays and he prays. For three weeks, he fasts. For three weeks, he humbles himself. For three weeks, he spends almost all day in prayer. And he's praying. If he wakes up in the night, he's praying in the night. Is there anybody in here who's ever prayed for three weeks straight? I haven't. Now, at the conclusion of three weeks, he's gone out with some companions to the Tigris River. Now, you see, he's more over in Persia. Let me, let me show you this. If you look at it this way, here, here's, the, hmm, here's the Euphrates River. Now, one thing to understand, closer to Daniel's time, these two rivers didn't join together and then flow into the Persian Gulf. The Persian Gulf was up more, but the delta growth here has uh, put it where these two rivers joined together to flow into the Persian Gulf. But this is the Tigris. This is the Euphrates. Look at the Tigris just a second. Okay, there's an aerial view of the Tigris. This, this is a major, major water 
uh, way here. And look at it here, flowing through this area. So here there's desert on every side, but the Tigris flows through. And that's where he was. And he's out there. And he goes there. Uh, this happens on the 24th day of the first month. Now, for Daniel, what would be the first month? The month of Nisan. That's the first month for them. And what happens on the 14th of Nisan? Anybody know? Passover. Did Daniel celebrate Passover? Yes. No. He's fasting. Did he celebrate the Feast of Unleavened Bread? No. Because he was fasting. What about the Feast of First Fruits? No, because he was fasting. So, uh, the Feast of First Fruits can follow anywhere from seven to one day after Passover. So, there we go. That's what they're doing. And he's in the middle of that. He's out by the river. And all of a sudden, something happens. He sees or meets a certain man. And the question is, who is that man? Daniel 10, 5 and 6. I lifted my eyes and looked and behold, there was a certain man dressed in linen, whose waist was girded with a belt of pure gold of Uphaz. And his body also was like beryl. And his face was like the appearance of lightning. And his eyes were like flaming torches. And his arms and his feet like the gleam of polished bronze. And the, sol- and the sound of his words was like a tumult. Who is this guy? Well, let's consider the description to try and help us. So he's dressed in linen, which is usually a very white material. He's girded with a belt of pure gold around his waist. His skin looks like... Uh, Burl. Now, Burl is a very bright yellow gemstone. Uh, his face appears as lightning. Now, what does that mean if your face appears as lightning? Lightning is not static or it's so bright that it's just, you can't believe how bright it is. His, flame, his eyes are like flaming torches. Well, that was the brightest source of light they had in those days. Uh, that is artificial light. Or man-made light. His arms and feet were like polished bronze. And the sound of his voice was like a tumult. Or tumult could be described as a roar. Or sometimes the roar of water. I'll never forget being on a vacation with my family. We went up to Colorado and we rode the trolley down to the base of the Black Canyon of the Gunnison. I don't know if you've ever been there or not. I was very young. But you couldn't hear anybody talk down there because of the roar of the waters it rushed. And I kept wanting to get closer to see it. And my mother kept grabbing a hold of me and saying, no, you're not getting any closer. And there was a struggle. She won. I didn't get washed away. But that's what that concept of tumult is. Now, there are some people who would say, I've seen that description somewhere before. We turn over to the last book. Uh, uh, of the Bible. It's Revelation uh, chapter 1 verse 13b is where I'm going to start. And I saw one like a son of man clothed in a robe reaching to his feet and girded around his chest with a golden sash. And his hair 
His head and his hair were, like, were white like wool, like snow. His flames were like a flame. I mean, his eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet were like burnished bronze when it is made to glow in the furnace. And his voice was like the sound of many waters. So if we compare him with that last guy, you will see it says he wore a robe that reached to his feet. His hair was white like wool or snow. His eyes were like a flame of fire. His feet appeared like burnished bronze, and his voice was like the sounds of many waters. As a result, a number of scholars say that was Jesus Christ. And this is something called a theophany, an appearance of Christ before he was brought into the world through conception in his mother Mary. And they want to say that. Do we want to accept that? Well, we've got a question we have to answer. Could it be Jesus Christ? Yes, it could. Depending on how many people are there. Who is present? Now, he sees this guy, and then we come to verse 10, and look what it said. Then behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. Where did that hand come from? Whose hand is that? it doesn't necessarily say that that's the hand of the guy he saw. It could be the hand of the guy he saw. We don't know for sure. And then it talks about him and what he said and, and his prayer. Now, here, here's what I'm going to say to you before we finish that. If there are three people there, they would be the messenger angel, which could be Gabriel, we don't know, the messenger Abel, angel. It could be the a second person who could be there is Michael, the archangel. And we'll talk about that in a second. And the third person could be Jesus Christ. But if there's only, th if there's three people there, then that could be a description of Jesus Christ. If there's only two people there, it could be Jesus, a description of Jesus, or it could be a description of Michael. If there's only one person there. It's clearly not Jesus. Now, why would I say that? Let's look at the rest of this passage here that we were looking at. And he said to me, O Daniel, man of high esteem, understand the words that I'm about to tell you and stand upright, for I have now been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. And then he said, Do not be afraid, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understanding this and humbling yourself before your God, your words were heard, and I've come in response to your words. Now, what is he saying? Three weeks ago, you started. I was given the response and told to go to you. Does it take an angel three weeks to get from heaven to Daniel? No, unless he was lollygagging, which angels don't lollygag. So why did it take him so long to get there? Well, let's read on. It says, But the prince of the kingdom of Persia, that's the prince of Persia, that's the demonic being who's running Iran right now, in my opinion. But the prince of Persia was withstanding me for 21 days. And then behold, Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me. For I had been left there with the kings of Persia alone. Now he, the word's plural. That's multiple other demons there who's there with the prince of the kingdom of Persia. Now, 
if there's only one person, Jesus Christ is not waylaid by a demonic being. He created that demonic being. He would never be waylaid by them. A lesser angel might be, but not Jesus Christ. And I'm of the opinion, the messenger angel is clearly not Michael, because Michael had to be called. So, if there's one there, it's just the messenger angel. It may be that Jesus decided to show up. I tend to think it's Michael, because Michael was there with him to help him get through and protect him. And that's the guy he saw over the river. But if you want to think it's Jesus, that's fine too. As long as you understand there's got to be somebody else. Yes? Why would it be Michael, since whoever is speaking to him refers to Michael helping him? If I were Michael, would I say, I, I'm No, Michael was there, and you see his appearance. But it's the messenger angel who's talking to him. He's the one who's saying, you know, I couldn't get through. I had to get help from Michael. And Michael's there protecting him because what's going to have to happen after he delivers the message? He's going to have to go back. Now, let me tell you something that I think happened here. And some of you may not like this, but I really don't care. I think there was a staff meeting at Satan's headquarters. And he, it's immediately after Daniel chapter 9. And he's saying, what in the heck, and he didn't use the word heck, what in the heck did you guys do letting that guy get through? Look at what he told him. I don't want him to know that kind of stuff. Don't you ever let somebody through like that again. Now it took three weeks. Michael had to be brought in. But Michael is the chief prince of Israel. That's why he's the one who's there. And let me tell you, Michael is someone you don't want to mess with. Now, you're going to see, if you study these things, that Michael was a little bit lower than Lucifer, but Michael is going to be elevated above Lucifer because in, in Revelation 12 and 13, Michael throws him out. So Michael is somebody you don't want to mess with. Now, before we finish, let's talk about just a couple of things. Consider again Daniel's prayer that we've witnessed so far. It was a lament, a crying out to God in sorrow about what was happening. It was intense and consuming. It was exemplified by an unhindered persistence. That trait of an uncompromising life pervaded Daniel's prayer life. Unhindered persistence. It was foundation was on God's revealed word. But his prayer was fortified by his fast. Now, fasting is something I believe the church has forgotten. Fasting is something we need to do. We need to learn why. Whose behalf is Daniel praying on? Israeli people. Do the American people need that kind of prayer now for their nation? Are we willing to pray like that? I have to tell you, this week, God talked to me, and he said, Are you praying Sunday night on behalf of the nation? Yes. Are you going to fast? 
Well, you sure that I should, God? Because, you know, I want to be strong when I stand up there. Satan tried every way he could to get me not to fast. But, and I failed yesterday. But I am on today. And no, it was me. I'm the one who made the decision to eat something yesterday. But today I'm going to fast until I pray. That's not a very serious fast like Daniel would have. But you, did you notice, we saw that you humbled yourself. And we heard your words of contrition. That's the way God responded to Daniel. Notice when you, we're going to talk about this more. Notice the reputation that Daniel had in heaven. Let's close in a word of prayer. Father, I thank you for the time that we can spend in this study of this magnificent book that you have given to us. I pray that you will help me to be faithful in studying. And when you tell me to fast, I will obey you. Father, be with us tonight as we pray for our nation, that the murdering stop, that we can return to some sane sense of civilization in our country, honoring the value of life, Help our people in our nation to understand what we've been doing. Maybe you're going to have to force us to see it like that container with the 17,000 bodies of little fetuses in it that they found. I pray, Father, that you will cause America to wake up, but more importantly, you will cause her believers to wake up, her saints and they will understand the only power they really have left is prayer, but that it's mighty and awesome. And that if we do it right, things can change just the way Daniel was able to change things for his people. And you change the heart of Cyrus. Now, Father, there's nine people specifically that I will pray that you will change their hearts just like you promised you could do in Proverbs 21.1. And I pray that we will be faithful in praying for those nine. In Jesus' name, I offer this prayer. Amen. <laughs>